Good evening, Hope. Open up to Ephesians chapter 2, will you? We're now into, the, into a new chapter in this uh, series through the great book that Paul penned from a prison to his beloved church over in Ephesus and the surrounding churches also. We've got to give ourselves a little bit of a context uh, uh, as, as we go into this passage. Last week, he finished off chapter 1 saying, uh, uh, in verse 19, you can go and look at it there, he's speaking about the... Uh, uh, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. The immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe. And then, then the rest of chapter 1, and then almost, I think, all of chapter 2 is basically just a big parenthesis explaining and modifying the kind of power that God works in us who believe. And so he starts by saying, where do we see the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards us who believe? Well, the first is in the resurrection, ascension, and enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom is given all things under his feet. That's the end of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he's going to start by saying, and you also have experienced the same kind of power at work in you by merit of your regeneration and your great and the grace given to you by faith in Jesus Christ. And then next week he's going to continue on in verse 11 onwards saying, and there's another place that you can see the immeasurable greatness of the power of God towards us who believe and that is in the church and the makeup of the church, and the unity of the church, but I won't preach next week's sermon. So look at Ephesians chapter 2, and this is just one of those gems that we're all so familiar with if you've spent time in church, the, the great passage of, of, uh, of Paul the Apostle to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Let's, let's read. You follow along. I'm reading in, uh, from the ESV. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that the come in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, lest it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless his own word in our midst this evening. Well, what a, what a beautiful and marvelous passage. If you're familiar with the uh, Protestant Reformation and some of the confessions and catechisms that came out of that, you might be familiar with one of the catechisms, the question and answer teaching uh, uh, document, which is known as the Heidelberg Catechism. And that catechism is, is sep uh, uh, distinguished or sort of uh, split up into its three main, main sections. Part one is guilt. Part two is grace, and part three is gratitude. The, the guilt part is our fall in sin, our condemnation, our, our, our guilt before the law. The, the grace is God's covenant, God's mediator in Christ, and our salvation of the gospel. And, and gratitude is how we now live and how the church 
ought to work. And, and this is a common kind of reformed way of, of understanding the, the gospel that Paul preaches is guilt, grace, and gratitude. And it's, it's very biblical because we see that this passage tonight comes at us in exactly the same form. These, these catechism writers were sort of taking the structure of Paul as they wrote their own systematic theology. We see in the first three verses our guilt we see in the next, three, uh, next uh, few verses from verse 4 to verse 9 is our grace, the grace of God towards us rather. And in verse 10, we see our gratitude back towards God by the merit of good works. But, but tonight is just, a, uh, a, just a, a review, a glorious summary and re-studying for what is so commonly heard by, by many of us. And you know what the tragedy is if you're visiting from another church, maybe the gospel is actually not put front and center at every service, as it ought to be. But I thank God that we're together tonight and we can just gather around the feasting table of God's word and stare into the glorious depths of the wonders that is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So look, look first, Paul, Paul understands that in order for us to understand the greatness, the immeasurable greatness of the power that God has worked in us in order for us to understand the, the amazingness, the, the greatness and the power of God's grace, we need to understand where it is that God has plucked us up out of. And that is the depths of guilt, sin, and misery. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2 tonight. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now, Remember, this is to Christians, this is to the Gentile, the Ephesian Christians, that he's saying, you, you were once dead. Remember, Christianity is not a religion of the good people, of those who, who haven't gone quite as dastardly sinful as other people. No, no, we, this was us. This is all of our testimony. The guilt, grace, and gratitude in these passages tonight is all of our testimony. But I'm aware that both in that church and in this church tonight, there will be people for whom all of this grace is actually not a realized reality. You're actually not in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want you, as we read in this passage here, I want you to read all of the cursing as present tense. Because it's not accurate for you to read it as if you were once in your sin. You're in fact, if you do not have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are still in your sin. You ought to read the first three verses like this. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you currently walk, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in you, the son of disobedience, among whom you currently lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body and mind, and are presently by nature a child of wrath. That's your current and present state. For the Christian, this is our real, true, past state. We were there. Now, now, as we consider this state before Christ, our what is commonly called our, our BC status, right? Before Christ, each of us had a, had a timeline, and we were BC and AD for each of our souls. And, and for all of us who were before we came to Christ, or rather, Christ came to us, before that, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, you note that he's, he's not speaking of a potential death. He was not saying that, that you were at risk of death, like the Roman Catholic teaching might try and be, that, that you, were, you were sick with sin and you were so close to that, to that death that would take you to hell. No, we, we're not, we're not uh, muddying the waters like that. Let's just hear the clarity with which Paul says it. In your sin, outside of Jesus, you are dead. You are a, you're a rotting corpse. That's what Paul wants you to think of. And yet, even in your deadness, 
Don't think deadness as in still. You know that if you see somebody at the last stop on the train and they are dead still, mouth gaping open and, and book uh, fallen down by their side, the stillness tells you they're, they're probably dead. Don't, you go poke them, you call the police, there's a, there's a dead body on the train. Now, what's one of the biggest signs that it's dead? There's no movement whatsoever. The heart isn't moving, there's no pulse, there's no warmth. It's just dead still. When Paul is speaking of death in this sense, this spiritual corruption that is death, he doesn't mean a, an inactivity. He's not saying that as a sinner you were dead still and doing nothing because he clarifies it in the very next phrase as he says, you were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It's the living, it was the actions that was so deadly about your state. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now, the, the usual way that the Reformed tradition kind of uh, uh, distinguishes or, or speaks about the enemies of our, of our soul, uh, as, as, as your spiritual warfare and you're a saint in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have three main enemies in your life. And usually what we say is it's, it's the flesh, it's the world, and it's the devil. And that's very biblical. That's exactly what Paul here says. He says, in your deadness, in your sin, in your trespasses, you were walking with the world, you were walking according to the devil, and you were walking according to your flesh. We're going to look at each of those now. He says at the first part of verse 2, in your deadness, in your dead activity, your zombie-like behavior, you were uh, uh, in which you once walked following the course of this world. When Paul here says world, he's, he's meaning the, the embodied culture. The, the imbibed mindsets and principles and worldviews and habits uh, that the, the society around us and that humanity uh, uh, grows about. The, the way that the whole human race works is that, is that we, are, we, we work together to set up these, these ungodly uh, 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 patterns. Our, our whole society becomes this, this, this slew of sins so that to be born into a, into a human society is to be born into, into a system that is set against God. I think it would have been a bit different, maybe the analogies I would be drawing on if I was preaching in 61 AD, but, but I'm in 2023 AD right now, so I have some additional analogies to draw on. I, I have the, the Walking Dead and World War Z and all manner of other Netflix and VR games that you might be able to think of. We, we have this, this phenomenon that we've seen, the, the zombie movie, the post-apocalyptic zombie movie. Unashamedly, one of my favorite, absolute unleashed massacring and, and, and post-apocalyptic warfare, that's, that's right down my alley. I love that. That's stress relief for me. I, I have once in my teenage years prayed for zombie apocalypse simply to, to release rage. But, but we're getting way off track. Let's get back on track. If, if you think in those, in those movies or in those games, you've probably seen it, the, the zombie horde. Right? One zombie just, just finds a, a gap in a fence and starts to walk, and everybody else, just if you can call them everybody, the, all the things, they all just follow one after another, and all of a sudden you've got, you've got thousands of these things, millions of these, of these things just marching through a city, destroying, killing, whatever is in their way, clamoring over fences and piling up on top of one another like maggots and like, like ants. Like That's the zombie horde, and, and I think that's a, a really good picture for the way that Paul is picturing us before Christ. 
He, he, he is, of course, in, kind of insulting us as we want to think I was, you know, I was a, against the Lord God because of my, my own individual reasons. And, and here he is just, just shoving away this, this idea of individuality and, and uniqueness and the punk rock spirit that wants to sort of strike out at the man before our, 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 our regeneration. No, you were actually not all that unique. You were just doing what everybody else was doing, which no matter which way it manifested for you, you were just zombie-like following the course of the world. You were doing exactly what everybody else around you was doing. That's his, his notion here. You were following the course of this present world set against God as it is. But then we find out in the next phrase that in fact... This zombie horde that we're a part of, simply walking on in our death towards our death, this, this, this group of people that we're, we're following along, it actually has somebody ruling over it. It actually has kind of a, a queen bee, if you want to think that way, who is directing the whole horde towards a certain area and angle, and that person, the leader of the masses, of the course of the world, is in fact the devil himself. Look at the rest of verse 2. You are following the course of this world, following the spirit that is, sorry, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So in fact, in fact, you were, you were all, while, while you were part of society and you were part of a big human group, let's not uh, ignore the fact, I know post-enlightenment, sort of secular humanist our worldview tends to be, but yet in the, at the same time, there was a spiritual reality that there very much is a spiritual reality to the things that we see in the world today. And so the devil and his principalities and powers, who in Ephesians 6 we're going to learn is actually our main enemy in our spiritual warfare in the Christian life, those very things, the principalities, the powers, the, demo the, the demons and the devil, they are at work throughout the people that are called here the sons of disobedience. All those who are not, remade in Christ Jesus, are walking according to his influence, his guidance, his leadership. And, and what is it that the, the demons are doing, that the, the devil is, is guiding the human society to do? Well, it's not the sort of thing that we see so much in, in Hollywood and the, the ridiculous uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, possession and, and uh, embodying in the little, uh, in the, uh, some cursed voodoo doll. It's not all, all quite much like that. It is much more the inspiring of, of false religion. It's things like miraculously empowering false gods. Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 8 that the little idols that people bend down and worship is just that. It, it, it's just a, a bit of stone or metal thrown together. It's not a god. However, there is a principality. There is a demon behind those things which miraculously empower the belief in those gods who give miracles to those false systems of belief. The devil in his Demons influence culture and society so that, now we see this today as well. I'm speaking of Rome, but I'm also speaking of today. Uh, he influences society to embrace a culture of debt through human sacrifice, abortion, war, slavery, violence, the breakdown of the nuclear family, and the abuse of the vulnerable. This is the sort of thing that the devil is doing so that when we see it, we can say, yeah, that's, that's the course of the world. And yet at the same time, we can say, that's the direction that the devil seeks to take the world in. And, and one of the other main ways that the devil is at work today, as Jesus tells his parable, is that he is the, 
He's the swooping bird flying around the churches and, and watching over the lives of Christians in order to pluck up the seeds of the gospel away from lost sinners lest they hear and that seed take root. He's here. He's amongst us. He's, he's in our midst even in this generation so as to take away the seed of the gospel. Friend, are you one of those that he will pluck the gospel from your hearing tonight? Or will you improve on what you're hearing from Paul? Will you, will you go home and pray? Will you, will you ask somebody who brought you tonight? I know I'm outside of Jesus. I'm walking according to the deadness of my heart and the course of the world and the devil. Tell me how I can be free of this sin. That is so important for you if you are outside of the Lord. And then thirdly, we see that this deadness that we're embodying is also largely according to our own flesh. So it's according to the world, it's according to the devil, it's also according to our flesh. Look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. So, so here, here Paul has actually, you might, have, you might have missed it, the pronouns. He's actually uh, switched from saying you, you Gentiles, you Ephesians, just in case there's a Jew in the room or, or maybe one of his pals in prison with him can hear him say all of this horribly insulting things and they say, yeah, yeah, these pagans, these infidels, these, these uncircumcised Philistines, they're sick. They're the pigs of the world. And Paul says, we all once walked in this way. I, I'm there with you. He goes from the you to the we. So that even the Jews, we, are, we were amongst you in the same way. But, but whether it was religious Judaism or whether it was pagan religion or atheism, whatever it was, do you see what he said here? It's not simply that you're born into this, into this course of the world. It's all society's fault. And, you know, it's the, it's the classic excuse. It's the devil made me do it. It's the world and it's the devil. It's not poor old me. Oh, I'm being taken advantage of. Rather, Paul actually says, I know you're, you're following the world. I know you're, you're following the devil because the world and the devil put on offer exactly what you love. You're walking according to the world and the devil, but according more deeply to your own heart's desires. He says the passions of your flesh the desires of your own mind. You think, you prefer, you desire, and that's what you are doing. You're, you're yes, you're, 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 you're taken up in the system, but there's no safety in numbers. You can't blame anyone else here. It's not, it, it's a, it may be a matter of group think, but that doesn't excuse the individual. How, how often we would, we would try and excuse ourselves in this way or, or sort of think towards God, maybe you're an unbeliever, and, and this is how you think. You go, I mean, I know God's seen how society's affected me or, or God's really, really seen how the devil's afflicted me, but, you know, if he knew my heart, if God could see my heart, he knows what I'm really like. And the truth is that, yes, he does. And he penned this chapter through the Apostle Paul to tell you your heart's the problem. The deeper you go in, the more you find the root of the problem. It was a while back that I uh, had issues with the pool of the place that I was living in, and I'd wanted, because I'm a dude, to sting out and not spend as much money as was hopefully necessary. And, and so the algae was building up, and I just thought, keep pressing on and off again, and just send it through the cell and send it through the filter, and hopefully the algae will go away. I thought that's how pools worked. And, and as I was doing this over and, and over again, it was just getting worse, so that by the time I finally swallowed my pride and called the well-overpriced pool fella, and he came around, he simply untwisted the top, yanked out the filter itself, and said, this, this is the issue. 
The algae has, has, has actually cultured and is growing in the filter itself. The more water you pump through it, the dirtier your pool is getting. That'll be $2,000. Right. That's the idea of us as we come to Ephesians 2. Don't think that there's any way that you can look to God and say, if I could just, if I could just get down to my heart, you know, if, if it can just be me, my heart, and God, then the solution will be, no, no, no. Your heart is that infected cell. Your heart is the source of all of your problems. Your desires, your passions, your wants, your thoughts are just as filthy as the devil would have the rest of that world be. The clearer we see our own heart, the more hopeless we realize our situation without God really is. Now, just in case, in case any of us have been hearing Paul so far, okay, yet yeah, the world the devil, I've got this sickness about me, I'm dead, and we go, that sounds like a condition. Now, you never throw somebody in prison for a condition, right? right? You, you never get a terminal illness uh, a diagnosis from your doctor, and then he races you to the police uh, quarters in order to lock you up because you're dying. That would be unfair. You, you don't find out that you've got some chronic disease and then get thrown before the, the magistrate because, because we understand that a sickness or a condition does not imply guilt. So just in case any of us were tempted to think of sin that way, it's a deadness, it's a sickness, it's a condition, it's, a, it's an influence, he then says in his last phrase in verse 3, that a good way to summarize us is children of wrath. Wrath comes only to the guilty. Biblically, God is, God is that God who reveals himself as never condemning or judging the righteous person. He'll never do that. But also, he would never ever let a guilty person go unpunished. Romans 4 tells us that the law brings wrath. Wrath is God's personal, vindictive, punitive wrath and anger against people who break his law, against people who are criminals. So when he uses the language of wrath here, we need to hear that these are children who are legally condemned, who are, who are before the law, they are criminals, therefore they rightly and justly stand under his wrath. Are, are we born dead? Yes. Are we wandering zombies following the course of the world? Yes. Are we given over to the sway and influence of the devil? Yes. Are we in this corrupted heart and nature from our, from our earliest moments? Yes. And are we guilty before God's law? Absolutely. And that is where the real problem lies. So we are, according to these first three verses, we are in guilt before God. Children of wrath by nature, undone and utterly hopeless. But if I can quote Martin Lloyd-Jones for a moment, praise God for the big butts in the Bible. He said it, Welsh Reformed theologian, not me, that's what he said. Praise God for the big butts in the Bible. And, and we find a big one right here in verse 4. Look at that. Rather, like, like, how would you think, pretend you weren't super familiar with Ephesians 2. Pretend this is, the, this is the first time you've ever come and you've sat under an exposition of your sin before a holy God. What would you expect verse 4 to say? And so God, being rich in justice, has poured out his wrath in order to make known the, the fullness of his holiness upon those preserved for destruction. Is that how you would expect verse 4 to sound? It is amazing. It is a glorious reality that at verse 4, we spin right around 180 degrees and God actually says to us through Paul, but 
this triune God, this, this God who is holy, 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 who breathed us into existence, and then we form a mob against him. And then it turns out we're, we're actually under the flag of the devil. And, and each one of us hate God and desire to drive a stake through his heart. He looks on us and what erupts in his heart is riches of kindness and mercy and grace. That is the kind of God that is the God of the Bible. Look at the phrases that I hear from verse 4 through 8. We have these, these following phrases. And, and this is to do with the, the motive of God's heart. He's rich in mercy there is great love with which he has loved us. Uh, by grace, immeasurable riches of grace, kindness, by grace, a gift of God. All of these phrases are in verse 4 through to 8. And this is speaking to that motivation behind God's heart. The answer is, if we, uh, the question rather, if we are children of wrath, where's the wrath? Why are we not burning every one of us. Why is there good news to preach? Why is there a good news to encase in a letter called the Ephesians? Why is there an apostle of good news? Why does any of this exist? If we are children of wrath, because of God's richness in kindness, in mercy, in grace, and in love. We don't know why. We don't know why God, from all of eternity, had an unbounding, overflowing, perpetual, eternal heart of love towards his elect and his son. But that is his essence and nature, to love those whom he saw as in his son, to love those whom he had decided to love. And what did he do with that inexplainable, unreasonable, unmotivated love that he then loves towards us, that, that is not just undeserved, but is ill-deserved. Do you know the difference? Undeserved is getting something you don't deserve. Right? I, I slip you a hundred, you don't deserve it, here you go, what a gift. The ill-deserved is something of which you deserve the opposite. You owe me a hundred grand, I give you two hundred grand. That's ill-deserved. You're the very person I should not give it to, and yet overflowing in love, I do. And here we have the ill-deserved grace of God. What does it do to us? What does he do in that grace? Look at verse 4 to 8 again. Sort of skim through with me. We see these phrases. He made us alive. He raised us up. He seated us in the heavenly places, and he created us new in Christ Jesus. That's what God does. But if you, if you recall, if you had the end of chapter 1 memorized, perchance, if you recall last week's section, then you'll re realize that, that what he just said about what God does to us is exactly the same as what God says he does to Jesus. So we come back to this common theme, this central thread in the book of Ephesians, which is that the gospel of God's grace is simply that you are made one with Christ. So whatever happens to Jesus, whatever is inherited by Jesus, whatever blessings the Father gives to Jesus, whatever love the Father eternally has for Jesus, he has for you. And so in verse 4 and 8, we see, we see the, the, very same, the, 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 the flip side of exactly what God did, did to the Lord Jesus. So compare to chapter 1, verse 20 to 22. If you've got a Bible, probably chapter 1 is right there on the same page. Between verse 20 to 22, and uh, in fact 23 as well, compare it to Ephesians chapter 2. Back in, chapter, uh, back in verse 20, he says that God raised him from the dead. And verse 5 of chapter 2 tells us that 
he made us alive together with Christ. In verse 20, it says that he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And in verse 6, he says, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The only difference between us and Jesus is that he's Jesus and we're us. I know I'm going real simple tonight. That's it. The only difference is that he's him getting the fullness and we're us getting the fullness through him. That's the only difference. The only thing that is different between Jesus and us is that he doesn't have faith in Jesus. He's Jesus. We have faith in Jesus and then get everything Jesus gets. That's union with Christ. Look at the next one. Why was he raised? Verse 21 tells us so that he might have the highest name both in this age and in the age to come. And then verse 7 of chapter 2 tells us why we were raised, so that we can put on display the riches of God's grace in this age and the age to come. This age and all following ages. Or what does he do there? Verse 22 tells us that he rules there as head over all things which God has prepared beforehand. And what do we do now that we're raised? We do good works which God has prepared beforehand. Verse 10. So, so here we are. This is the good news. What has God, rich in mercy, done to you? Everything he did to his son. Because you're his son. Because you're in Christ. He can't separate the two of you. So, so did he make Jesus alive from the dead? Yes. Did he take away all sin from Jesus because it was all paid for? Yes, he did that to you too. Did, did, he, did he seat him up so that he is secure there? He has status there? He's untouchable there? The kingdom power comes from there? Yes, and all of that is true also for you. This is the grace by which we have been saved. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Don't you love the past tense of that? Not being saved, not might be saved. You have been saved. The assurance that can come to a soul by their leaning on Jesus, the assurance that can come to a soul in this life long before you do any good works, long before you, you accomplish any kind of threshold, you, by your knowledge of Jesus, can know now where you're going at the end of your life. What a joy. But what does the end of verse 8 say? We have been saved by grace, and yet that grace comes to us via a certain cord or through a particular conduit. We have any sparkies in the room tonight? Maybe plumbers? You're familiar with the idea of, of the conduit, the, the pipe that simply connects A to B. Now, now, in case you're not a sparky, I'm not, but I know this much. The conduit does not, and it's not counted as a conduit, if it actually carries or, or, or holds a charge itself. The, the conduit is supposed to be the plastic, the insulator. All that matters to the conduit, the only reason the conduit that connects the power source to the appliance is useful, the only reason it's useful is because of what it holds inside itself. It's because of what it allows to join from A to B. The only, the only value that a conduit brings is what it is connected to. And here Paul says that you are saved by this mountain, this, this reservoir of grace. But what connects that grace to you personally? It is the simple conduit, the simple pipeline of faith that does nothing in itself, that adds nothing to the reservoir. It simply is an open channel between God and you, and that is faith. Now, I want to ask, what is faith? How should we define it? But but, but I sympathize with Spurgeon, who says, what is faith? Well, as soon as you start describing it, you run the risk of confusing the question. I mean, we all know what faith is. It's, it's faith. 
It's just, faith is faith. It's so simple, and yet false religion and our own, our own consciences or our own misunderstandings from bad teachers has, has often muddled up what faith is, and so the very simple has to be explained. And I'll borrow from Spurgeon again, who himself was borrowing from the Puritans, and, and it goes like this. What, what is faith? It's threefold. It's knowledge, it's belief, and it's trust. That's the, the three necessary elements for saving faith. First of all, it's knowledge. It's, it's just, are you aware of what the good news is? And, and none of you have the excuse tonight, okay? Uh, as long as you speak English, you're here in this room, and I've already told you, we've checked this box, Jesus died for sinners so that you can be forgiven. He was risen so that we can have eternal life with him. Faith alone is what saves you. Right there. So you have the knowledge. The question next, though, is once you know the data of the gospel... There's not just faith in anything. It's, it's the right kind of faith and the right kind of truth. Once you have that knowledge, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus really was God? He really did come. He really did die. He really did live for us. He really did resurrect. And he really did uh, uh, go and take his seat up there. And, and it's true that those who believe in him are saved. Now, I'm not asking you if you're saved yet. I'm simply asking, do you believe that those who believe are saved? That's the first two parts. If you're here wondering, am I saved? Do I have enough faith? Am I, am I a strong enough kind of Christian to have this salvation? Do you have faith? Are these simple answers? Are these simple questions? Do you know the gospel? Do you believe it to be true? And then the third is, do you rest? Do you trust that? Or as the, the Puritans would say, in a, a, a status of, a posture of recumbrance. That might not bring any clarity for those who are not super aware of what recumbrance is, but it's exactly what you're doing right now. It's the leaning back into something to take your weight. That's what trust is. Faith is the knowledge of the gospel, the belief that it's true, and then simply resting your own soul's weight into it. Now, if you can tick those boxes, then you have what the Bible calls saving faith, and it is by grace that you are saved through that faith. Now, here's the next question we start, we start issuing our conscience with is, what if my faith is not strong enough? What if it's not thick enough, broad enough, uh, 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 tensile enough? What if, what if it's just not of the, uh, a big enough quality in order to bring about such a glorious salvation? But, but let's go back for two examples, one story by Spurgeon and one simple, uh, one simple uh, sparky uh, example, again, just for, the, just for the tradies among us. If you are trying to connect a, a power source to an appliance, like, like I'm sure that all of us did, did grade, not, maybe not all of us, but I'm pretty sure we all went through grade nine science. And, and, and we, we did those little tests where you just join the little wire up to the light bulb and, and up to the battery. Now, now it doesn't matter if, you're, if your teacher handed down to you one of the big thick wires, one of the red wires, or one of the blue wires, or, or one of the little dodgy thin ones that has obviously been in the school's cupboard since the 1980s and is, is dodgy and wrapped around itself a few points and held together with some staples, things like that, it doesn't matter what kind you had. Where there is a line of connection in the copper between the power and the light, it matters not how thick it is, it matters not how old it is, it matters almost not even how rusty it is. What matters is the connection. That story from Spurgeon, he, he says that there was these two guys, I take it as history, but it's Spurgeon, so 
I'm just going to say it was a sermon illustration. There was two men in a boat who would topple over in the water above Niagara Falls. And they were, they, they, they were coursing down the river and, and rocks had destroyed most of the, the ship and what was floating around them as they were coursing towards the waterfall that would surely mean their death was, the, was a shards of, the, of the, the, the wooden ship. There was, there was logs to cling onto and so each of them grabbed onto one and there they were, they were rushing down the river floating but floating in a certain direction of death when somebody further down the, the, the river thought, thought to throw in a rope. And so they, they grabbed the rope, they tied it to a tree, and in they hurled it to the river so that both of the men, as they swept past, they let go of the log and clung to the rope. But one of the men, as they were sitting there, holding themselves against the current of the river and watching the, the large, thick, robust logs of wood from the ship that were, that were going past, one of them thought to themselves that this is a tiny little rope, and that is a large, broad log. And so in his, in his moment of desperation and folly, he let go of the rope to cling to the log because it seemed more robust and able to save him. But the question was not supposed to be, which is bigger? Which looks stronger? The burning question for his salvation at that moment should have been, which one is connected to the ground? Because he clung the wrong thing. He plummeted to his death, safe and sound above the water, dead at the bottom of the waterfall. Spurgeon says that that's like so many of us. We, 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 we see this rope of Jesus, and, and we, we think we're to cling to that, and it sounds like the gospel, and we've heard that. However, there's something much more visible, grander, larger, which we might call our own righteousness, our own living, our own, our own uh, obedience to the works. And, and so we cling to that thinking, this will save it. Surely this will save me. But that may be broader and more visible and more right before our eyes, but it's nothing more than a chunk of wood floating towards destruction. The question is not how big is the rope of your faith connecting you to Christ. The only question is, is it connected to him? And that is good news because some of you have, have had the worst months in your spiritual lives. Some of you, your, your other relationships around you are in tatters because of the sin you've allowed in your life. Some of you have, 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 have been neglecting the means of grace and you haven't prayed in months and you haven't read the Bible and you're, you're weak and you're, 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 you're allowing bitterness to grow and there's all sorts of issues with you and, and maybe even you're unsaved and, and you're sure that if you met God tonight, it'd be the hottest of hells for you, but, but none of that is really the question. The question is simply, have you rested in Jesus? I'm not asking how good you've been. I'm not asking how much you've done. I'm not asking how good your status is. I'm asking, can you cling to Jesus Christ? Can you lean on the promises that are beneath you, ready to catch you, lest you fall to your eternal peril? Jesus the is, is the source of grace. We need only have faith in him. And what does verse 10 say? Here we move from our guilt. We've gone through the grace, and now we see the gratitude I will point out that at this point, Paul has not mentioned any good works. That's intentional. He has been so intentional at this point to not mention any of our good works until after salvation. He's going to use it all as, as resultant language. You've been saved for good works, not saved by good works, not created by your good works. It's all post-salvation is good works, but also... The only time he mentioned any of your works so far in the passage has been to denigrate and insult you. 
that, yeah, you were working, it was killing you. You were doing things, and they were all sins and trespasses. He's just been so careful to, to keep this, this Reformation principle, this sola fide principle, alive and well. He says here in verse 9, not a result of works so that no one may boast. He's about to talk about good works, but it doesn't come until you're saved. He's about to talk about your obedience, but that doesn't come until after faith without works has saved. Maybe you've had a reformed, uh, a reformed wow, Roman Catholic buddy who said to you something uh, a little quirky along the lines of, hey, do you know the only place in the New Testament that we see the phrase faith alone? It's in James. And it's when James is saying that the faith that is alone doesn't actually save. So, so what now? Where's your, where's your sola fide faith alone principle now? Now, we're okay with that. We're, we're, you need to be absolutely fine with it. You simply say back and, and show me the chapter that tells us about the Pope. You know, just, just throw back on them if we're looking for passages about things. Why don't, why don't you step up to the plate? But we can also remember, yeah, and there's no passage that uses the word trinity we don't use simply biblicist phrases as if you can only use the words in the scripture. We, we speak of principles. Now, here's what the reformers meant. When they said sola fide, faith alone, they, didn't, they, they weren't simply quoting a passage. They were saying that all throughout the New Testament, when Paul defines faith, he does so with a phrase of some kind so as to make it alone. Sometimes he'll say, faith without works of the law. Sometimes he'll say, faith not a result of works. Sometimes he'll say, faith without any obedience. But, but to summarize them all, we simply give it the catchphrase, faith alone. By way of our justification, we are saved by faith alone. In terms of the grace of salvation, you receive it by faith alone, without any works, because that's the only way God gets all the glory. Read verse 9 again. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's not looking to share his glory. So all you get is faith to exercise. And by the way, verse 8 says that even that faith is a gift from God himself. You're welcome. Your only job is to glorify God. But he does talk about good works after salvation, and that's in verse 10. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The, the good works is at the very end of the line after salvation, just so we clarify that your good works don't save you. But isn't it glorious that he calls us his workmanship? This is, this, this is technically the same Greek word, meaning poetry. No, it doesn't carry, it's not as if you can translate this like some wishy-washy guys do, as we are his poetry. Way too lame. That's not the meaning. However, the same Greek word is the word for an artistic creation. So when, when he says to us, we are his workmanship, we need to just lay some foundations that there is nothing more glorious in creation than the human being. The, those, those beings, us creatures, who even in our sinful state, which are dead in our trespasses and following Satan, even in that state, we are image bearers of the glorious God and Michelangelo's sculptures, Shakespeare's writings, Monet's paintings, none of them compare to the glory of the human being. 
Not, not the Grand Canyon, not marvelous uh, uh, sunsets, not majestic waterfalls, no array of wonderful sea creatures. Nothing compares in majestic glory to the human being in creation. And yet, something far outshining that is the polished diamond of God's workmanship, which is the sinner redeemed from sin and put to work for God's glory. That there are two, I've heard it said, there are two great Great proofs of God's existence. One is the first creation. He's put it on display. And the second is the new creation, put on display in the church. You are God's workmanship, a proof of his wisdom, a proof of his power, and a proof of his majesty. Look at, look at what he says here at the second last phrase of chapter 10, uh, verse 10. Of these good works. You know, we, we, we read in chapter 1, our election our predestination, our salvation, redemption through Christ's blood. All of that was set before the world began. And, and us Calvinists just give that a hearty amen. We're cool with that. Yes, yes, everything that was set before the foundations of the world. But do you realize that even your good works were established in God's decree before the foundation of the world? Your good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a marvelous thing to consider. A, a conversation for you to have today set on God's calendar before the foundation of the world. Uh, uh, maybe a, a, an evangelistic prayer that you're praying for somebody today set in God's calendar for today to achieve a glorious end. Uh, an act of service towards somebody that is used by God in his ultimate plan set before the foundation of the world. This gives endless significance to the most minute acts of obedience. The only question is, are you walking in them? Christian, are you seeking to walk in them? Those things that God has foreordained, but, but far, far away, the most important question before we close out is, have you, sinner, have you, once dead in your trespasses and sins, not, not have you gone to church, have you been baptized, have you taken communion, have you, have you said the, the Lord's prayer, have you, have, you, have you signed a card, have you been to youth group? None of those questions. I don't, I don't care about those. My question is, have you rested, leaned back into the mercy of God in Jesus Christ? Has your faith connected you to Christ and in him received all of his blessings? If so, you are saved. If not, you're yet to be saved. Please believe now. Let's pray. God, your word is supreme. Your word is powerful. Your word is living and your word is active. We pray and we pray humbly, Lord God, that your word would do the work on our souls by the power of your Holy Spirit in an immeasurable greatness of power towards us who believe as we come and we, we consider the glories of the gospel and we consider the depths of our guilt and our sin. And we consider the, the, the extent of your mercy and your grace and your love. And as we consider the, 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 the significance of serving you through good works that you've prepared beforehand. Father God, I, I pray that, that you, would, uh, you would renovate us more into your likeness. That today, going on into this week, we would be more motivated for good works. We would be more sure of our salvation in Jesus. We would be more humbled by the status of our guilt before you, before we came to Jesus. Lord God, I, I pray that you would exalt and glorify yourself in our estimation so that we might rightly worship and serve you. And God, if there are any here tonight who are still outside of you, 
Maybe they have considered themselves Christians before now. Maybe they have known that they are separated from you by their sin. Maybe they have been, they have been conflicted in their heart. Maybe they have not cared at all. But tonight, Lord God, tonight, would the devil not have freedom to pluck up the seed of the gospel, but would you plant it deeply in their hearts that they would believe and be added to us as one of our number, one of the family of God, one of the inheritors of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name and for his glory. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.